Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Whenever and wherever it is that you're listening to us, we want to thank you in advance. We as fans have always appreciated your input as fellow fans. When you're happy, we're happy. When you're upset, we are too, but sometimes we're just a little bit more honest. We are the Bastards of Boston Baseball. You can find us on Twitter at Bastards underscore Boston. I am your host, Cody Paulson, coming to you from Houston, Texas, by way of Ponte Vedra Beach. You can find me on Twitter at the Cody Paulson. Our other hosts for this episode are Terry Cushman, coming to us from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, by way of Wyndham, Maine, and Nick Face, coming to us from Reading, Massachusetts. Terry, how are you doing tonight, and where can the fans find you? I am doing excellent. Completely invigorated by the Astro Series preview we just recorded, so check that out if you haven't, and I can be found on Twitter at Cushman MLB. Very well. Yes, that is a great episode that we just finished up. It'll give our thoughts and our opinions on the upcoming series. Nick, how are you doing tonight? And where can the fans find you? Yeah, Terry and I are the extreme optimisms here in our bunch here. I've put that down in the notebook and the historic reference and everything. Uh, fans can find me on Twitter. At fa- oh, or X. I'm still in that whole thing. Twitter. It's Twitter. I know. It's Twitter. Uh, face the Facts 15. Very well. Uh, as you all know, it is Hot Take Tuesday. So, Nick, we'll keep it with you. What is your first hot take for the evening? So, I just came back from a really fun weekend in Pittsburgh where our one of my family members was inducted into the Hall of Fame. Took a bunch of friends and we... Uh, had some chance to talk baseball. And one of the big topic of conversations on this trip was somebody who is very missed for the Boston Red Sox in the booth, and that is Jerry Remy. He's missed calling the games. He's missed being seen at Fenway Park. The man was an icon. He meant so much to the team, and it's amazing that it's going to be coming up on uh, two years and uh, I think it was October 30th or 31st, right in Halloween or something around there, when we lost Remy to that awful disease of cancer. The reason he's coming up here in this conversation here tonight is it got me fired up hearing this question that was asked. And here it is. Should the Red Sox retire Jerry Remy's number? And... I love the sound of that. I think that is very classy. I think it's deserved from how much time and commitment and how much he meant to not just the Red Sox, but to fans and everything like that. And in a way, it it's a reference or an example, rather, of Johnny Pesky. Johnny Pesky, again, was uh, Mr. Red Sox. He was heart and soul of that team for many, many years. The Red Sox retired his number, number six. And, you know, number two has been getting – Getting around lately, it's been Xander's number, it's Justin Turner's number, it's been a lot of different people. So I think Carl Everett's back in the day it was even. There's a Carl, Rev- Ever- Carl Everett reference on our show here this evening. Imagine that. But here's the question. Should Jerry Remy's number be retired? I'm all for it. What do you guys think? I absolutely agree with it. I don't think it would be inappropriate to do it. Um, how many people have truly made an impact on Red Sox Nation uh, like Jerry Remy has? And, I mean, the list would be very short. 
Pedro Martinez, David Ortiz, maybe John Lester. And that's it, I feel like. I mean, those are the only people that I think are more beloved than Remy. And the difference, though, is is their careers were were short in comparison because Remy's, you know, transcended into the broadcast booth for over 30 years. And you just got so used to that voice. Like, he was going to be on Nesson forever. And as far as his standpoint goes, I think he would have loved... I think he loved the fact that Xander Bogarts wore his number. And I think he would have loved Justin Turner had he lived to see the signing and the year that he's had. So so I, I guess where I'm going is I, I don't have a strong opinion either way, but I don't think the Red Sox as an organization or Nesson has, has done enough since his passing to commemorate everything he did. They did have the patches on the numbers last season, which I don't think did Jerry Remy a lot of justice because we sucked and it was a terrible season. And I even sort of joked, but I, I was half serious last winter. I said, we'll put them back on the jerseys again and see if see if we have a better season and can do it a little bit more justice. But I wish they did more. I mean, you can't rename the pesky pole to the Remy pole. You can't do anything like that. What you could do, and I think this has been brought up. It's not an original thought of mine, but controversially Yaki way was renamed and I, I didn't have a strong opinion on that either, but, but you can only name a street uh, after a person if they are deceased. So perhaps the old Yaki way needs to, needs to become Jerry Remy way or Jerry Remy Avenue or whatever. They changed it back to Jersey street, which what was what it was, you know, a hundred years ago. But uh, I'd love to see something like that. And uh, I'll pass it over to Cody. As somebody that didn't grow up in, you know, the New, Le- New England area, didn't have access to Nesson for the longest time, when I first got, you know, the MLB at-bat subscription and I could, you know, tune into the Nesson feed and get the local broadcast, when Jerry Remy came over the, the airways, you got that Buenos Noches Amigos, like, you knew it was time for baseball, Right. Obviously, none of us were around to see him you know, as as he was a ball player for the Red Sox, but he just meant so much to to bringing the sounds of the game to so many people across Red Sox Nation, across New England, across America, for for lack of better terms. And you know, where he might not have had the longest career in in Boston on the field, he certainly you know gave it literally everything um, from there on afterwards in in the booth in the organization and. Um, even if it is uh, a, a commemorative retirement, I think you got to do it. There are so many people, especially like in this generation, that have so many fond memories tied to to Remy. And I mean, you you, you just can't miss on this opportunity, in my opinion. But uh, do you guys have any other thoughts on the number retirement? All I want to say is that Don Arcello better be there too if they do do that. Just putting that out there. Red Sox need to do it right this time because they did it wrong the last time. I was going to say they did botch that tribute uh, to to the ire of a lot of fans. 
Yeah, I, and I, I don't think Don Orsillo would, would miss that for the world. So, Very true. Well, Terry, over to you. What is your hot take for this Tuesday? So mine comes from our good buddy, Lori, who essentially runs our Instagram page. So credit to her for that. Um, I'm stalling, though, as I get to the hot take thread. <laughs> I am never prepared. Okay, so Lori on, on Twitter, as I will stubbornly keep calling it, says... Yamamoto is coming to play in Boston will depend a lot on what Yoshida has to say about his own experience uh, playing here. So I think that's true. Um, and fortunately for Yoshida, we're like the only ones who ever criticize him. And by we, I mean mostly me. So, I mean, Yoshida has quickly become a very well-liked uh, player, you know, in Boston. Uh, one of the only guys we have super long-term, uh, essentially, um, you know, aside from, you know, your Tristan Casas guys that are, are getting called up and have a ton of service time left. But I think perhaps Yoshida could recruit a guy like Yamamoto. Uh, Koji Uihara. Uh, would be another guy that could probably do you a solid and and help get him over here. Uh, as far as, oh, and I'll mention before I get into this next thing, he Yamamoto was seen on social media uh, wearing a Red Sox t-shirt uh, in the last week or so. So uh, I mentioned that on a recent show. Perhaps that's the bat signal. Hey, Heim, come talk to me. So certainly a good sign because, uh, you know, Otani, there's no indications at all that he, he would potentially want to sign here. Uh, let's just get into Yamamoto a little bit. I'm not an expert on the Japanese leagues, but I did watch the WBC, and he was a prominent starting pitcher uh, for Team Japan, which did go on to win the WBC. Yamamoto uh, has pitched a hundred and uh well he's played for two teams so he pitched 127 innings for his first team uh and only seven uh innings for the second team and he's got a 1.42 era in japan and he's essentially won the equivalence of their cy young i guess is that right cody the last couple seasons, the last two in a row? Uh, he's a two-time league MVP. Um, I, I think I'm seeing the, uh, the E.G. Sawamura Award. Is that the one you're talking about? I'm not sure. <laughs> but he's he's been very good. Let's, let's just put it that way. He's 25 years old presently. I uh, just turned 25, actually, last week. Uh, so he'll potentially be signed, uh, you know, over the winter at age 25. And looking at the market next year, it's not the sexiest market when it comes to starting pitchers. Marcus Stroman is a free agent. Hard pass for me uh, on him. 
Uh, Charlie Morton, also a free agent. He will be, I believe, 40 or 41 years old next year. Lance Lynn, Eduardo Rodriguez, who I, I might actually be interested in. I'm not sure how you guys feel about it, but Noah Syndergaard is a free agent next year. Uh, Aaron Nola, Lucas Giolito, Sonny Gray, Blake Snell, all free agents. Um, looking down the list, Michael Lorenzen uh, could be interesting. Actually, uh, he was traded away from Detroit uh, to Philadelphia. Pitched a gem in his first start, no hitter in his second start with the Phillies. That's Michael Lorenzen. So. You got some decent names, but no one that's like uh, outside of Otani, but he's not going to pitch next year anyway, and possibly never again. Who knows? But uh, he's going to need Tommy John with a torn uh, UCL. But there's no surefire pitcher that everybody's going after. There's no Scherzer on the market. There's no Verlander on the market. So I'm... I'm good. I mean, I would be open-minded towards a guy like Yamamoto. Now, despite being, uh, and before I pass it to you guys, despite being only 25, uh, he has pitched 928 innings uh, since his age 18 season. You could compare that to Aaron Nola, who's going to be 29 or 30, I think. He's pitched about 100 more innings uh, over the course of nine years. Uh, in Major League Baseball. So they have similar pitch totals uh, despite the the age gap. So I'll just leave it at that. Nick, your thoughts. Before we started recording and talking on the show, I said to both Cody and to Terry, I said, I have a difficult time giving a big contract Again, to another Japanese pitcher from Daisuke Matsuzaka and everything from back in the day. He had two decent seasons. It started out as a 15 and 12 first time out for the Sox. And then his 2007 season, he was very, very good. 18 and was it 17 and three, 18 and three. Let me look at that one more time. 18 and three with a two nine zero ERA. He had a great year then. Then it just completely collapsed. And he was just never the same from anything there. They're a different breed than how they are here in the major leagues. It's a different system that they're used to. There's more days off for pitching. Number-wise, looking at those stats and everything, they scream to me and say, there's a true pitcher. There's a guy that the Red Sox have not had much luck with, with grabbing a free agent starting pitcher who looks exactly as you want Looks like a bona fide ace. Looks like a guy that can help this team out in lots of different ways. If that's the case from it, and the free agent class, as Terry just shared with you, does not look that appealing from everything, it is time to take a chance. Dip into that market and give this another opportunity to grow. I think it's a great chance to sign him with just having Yoshida on your crew probably having some sort of a connection with Koji Uehara. Let's not forget about Daisuke, uh, not, uh, Hideki, uh, Hideki Okajima and also Janichi Tozawa as well. Those are all guys pitching, at least for the bullpen and everything, that did a pretty serviceable job. 
You also can't forget Hideo Nomo, first time out in his season back in 2001 through that no-hitter. He had a pretty good year from that from that team as well, too. So I guess I for the Daisuke thing, just to wrap it up, I wish Daisuke was better than what we got. Had flashes, but if this signing was something that the Red Sox were inclined to do, I would sign up for it. I mean, how can you not sign up for it? And uh, Terry, to to close the loop on it, yes, he did win two of those uh, E.G. Sauermore awards, which is the equivalent of the Cy Young over there. He is also a two-time pitching triple crown winner for the uh, the Japanese Baseball League. So the guy's numbers are electric. And to even pull it to another pitcher, uh, Tanaka, who obviously dominated the Japanese league. This guy's got stats on par with him, if not even better. And, you know, to, to reference another team in Queens, Kodai Senga, all-star in his first season. I think the, the development in the Japanese leagues has been rapidly increasing. Um, I know it used to be like a, a player that was trying to squeeze some extra life out of their career would go over to the Japanese league, try to, you know, make some extra coin. But um, those are quickly becoming competitor you know feeder leagues if not competitive leagues uh to, to the mlb um you guys make great points about the free agent market there isn't a lot of talent that's out there there isn't a lot of talent out there that's going to be affordable to where you can continue to build upon this starting pitching rotation roster right we have a couple of spots that we need to fill we can't go throw a whole bag at a blake snell or an Aaron Nola and, and call it done for, for the offseason, right? We're going to have to piece this together with a couple of different parts. And, and hopefully, um, you know, Yamamoto can, can be that player. Uh, his, his stats, his peripherals, his pitching lines are all very encouraging. And, you know, if we can use the lineage of, you know, Japanese baseball players having success in Boston to our advantage, I say, why not? Right. I mean, at this point, you know, would you rather have Yomamoto, an unknown commodity, or another bullpen game? Sign me up for Yomamoto every time. Any other thoughts there, Terry? Yes. So I did forget one notable uh, free agent that I, I would actually probably like more than any of them, aside from Yamamoto, is Julio Urias uh, is also a free agent. A couple of laughable things. Um, the Giants apparently thought it was a good idea to give Ross Stripling a $15 million player option. So Stripling gets to decide if he's going to make $15 million next year. And I think the answer will be yes. But uh, getting back to Yamamoto, uh, well, actually, first, you mentioned Kodai Senga, who was the big Japanese uh, free agent starting pitcher last winter. The Mets got him. And he has had a pretty good season. He's uh, pitched to a 3.16 ERA, 136 innings. So healthy amount of innings. I think he was hurt just for a week or two, um, but didn't miss much time. The stat I, I, I like looking at the most when I pull up their baseball references, their strikeout per nine. And... Senga has a 10.8 strikeout per nine. So that's pretty good. He's got that ghost fork pitch, um, which um, must uh, must have lived up to the hype because with Dice K, we had the gyro ball, which I don't think we ever saw. Um, that was just a myth uh, as it turned out. And But the one notable difference here is Senga is 30 years old. So he's five years older than Yamamoto and had pitched in the 
Japanese leagues for 11 years uh, prior to the Mets signing him. And he got, let's see how many, he got a five-year, $75 million deal. If that's what Yamamoto would cost, sign me up. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, Nola, a lot of those guys I mentioned, Giolito, they're all going to get more. Um, having said that, uh, I wouldn't be shocked if if uh, Yamamoto ends up in the 120 to $140 million range, given the fact he's younger um, and more coveted. I mean, he's a better pitcher. So, but having said that as well, I, I would probably sign that. I mean, that, that sounds better than a David Price type deal, seven years, 217 million. So just throwing that all out there, but uh, get ready to hear a lot of Yamamoto's name as the season winds down and free agency kicks off. The hot stove will definitely be cooking this off season. Uh, that actually brings us into our third hot take of the evening. This comes from Johnny Fontaine, and he says, Heim deserves an extension. And boy, uh, is that quite the hot take for this podcast. Um, I think I can self-describe uh, myself as the most Heim positive, and I don't even know if I'm in, in the camp of giving this individual an extension at this point. Um, I think I can see the groundwork to the, to the plan that Haim has laid. I think, you know, we're definitely taking steps in the right direction. The players are, you know, being developed. I think we need to continue to invest in the analytics and the coaches, um, emphasis on the coaches, you know, maybe we do need a little bit of, uh, shifting some, some fresh faces in that department, but I am encouraged by what Heim has done. He has gotten a lot of the dry rot out of the organization and he has started to fill it with better talent top to bottom. Um, I want to see really how next year it goes. And I believe next year is the last year of his deal, uh, which is really tough because I know it is kind of a, a point of emphasis for executives. They don't ever like to be in the last year of their deal. They kind of like to have, um, you know, at least one year of cushion. Um, but I don't know if I'm ready to give him an extension yet. I think it's really going to be on this offseason, as we just talked about, right? That hot stove. Is he going to get the likes of a, a Yamamoto or, um, you know, a Nola or some of these other big name pitchers, even a Blake Snell? I think all of those players are going to come with a, a high price tag. So how is he going to be able to, to navigate those waters and do the thing that he hasn't necessarily done so far, which is build that front line starting rotation? If he's able to get some big fishes or, you know, get some pieces in that that does build a good starting rotation, then I'd be happy to have that conversation. You know, he's done, I think, as we've all said, a great job building, building the bullpen, building a lineup that can that can hit top to bottom. Um, it's just, you know, can he put together <laughs> the other half of the pitching equation? Terry, what are your thoughts? Actually, I'll pass it over to Nick real quick. I'd rather go last on this one. I am going to start this out with what Sean McDonough said today on the Red Sox broadcast on WEEI. And he said this about Mookie Betts trade. He said, it's a trade that can never be defended and a stain that'll never be erased. The trade of Mookie Betts by the Boston Red Sox. I start that out because this take that was brought to our attention for tonight gets me on edge and the reason it gets me on edge is 
I base things on winning championships results. Heim Bloom has not done anything since he's been here. There aren't any championships, World Series, nothing. Has he assembled a bullpen that's half decent this season? Yes. But I don't know how much credit I give him for that because it's a player's performance. The performances you've seen from Chris Martin and Kenley Jansen and Winkowski finding himself a role in the pen, Cutter Crawford finding a spot that's been able to work in the rotation. Those are definite pluses. But you have to look at things at a larger sample size than just a small, minute group of signings that have, for the most part, failed. You can even look at Ryan Brazier now catching lightning in a bottle with the Dodgers. That's a failed Heim Bloom uh, release. The Red Sox should have been able to figure out internally how they were able to fix him. Same goes with Kike. He promised Kike the world this past offseason. He promised him the team's going to be better. We're going to build this playoff team. We're going to get players in here that are going to get us over the hump and be here to win. Well, Kike, he's not here anymore. And he's now partying it up with the Dodgers. There is nothing to give for an extension worthy option for Heim Bloom. The only thing that should be extended is the hand to the exit sign leaving York. Uh, I was going to say Yawkey Way, Jersey Street, because I'm done. It's time for the next. So we call him all the time. Bring the next nerd in. Bring that next nerd in to see who can get the job done. Terry? So Nick and I are two out of the three uh, on the podcast. Charlie Smith would actually be the third who are firmly entrenched uh, into the fire bloom uh, movement. Um, here's some things to point out. I mean, th there's no secret where I stand. The audience knows where I stand. Dave Dombrowski was fired on September 9th. 2019 and and that was his fourth season with the red sox this is bloom's fourth season with the red sox so if bloom makes it to september 10th and i suspect he will his tenure will have lasted longer than dave dombrowski's and been far worse and the red sox uh on september 9 2019 when when dombrowski got fired uh in the middle of the night uh following a sunday night baseball game we were nine games above 500. We weren't even losing. Dave Dombrowski never had a losing season in the city of Boston. So Bloom's tenure, like I said, if he makes it to September 10th, will have been longer than Dave Dombrowski's. Here's just some things to consider. Some patterns, you know, based on previous firings, what have you. He's probably not going to be extended. There's not going to be an extension going into next year. Very seldom do you actually see an executive go into his lame duck season without an extension. You never see that. They get fired before being a lame duck. So it's hard for me to grasp that the Red Sox would actually let him do that like all the damage he could he could do 
Because let's look at it this way. If you're high in bloom and next July comes around and you still don't have an extension, if it didn't happen in the middle of the season and it's up to you to handle the trade deadline, could you imagine the damage that could be done? What if he makes a desperate move to save his job that costs us a couple of key prospects that you know otherwise wouldn't be a popular trade? I just can't. It would be unprecedented for him to get that far. Or any executive for that matter. Typically, if there's options, it's it's picked up the season before as well. So even under those circumstances, they're not going into their lame duck season. So it would be unprecedented if, if you know, next spring or summer rolls around and Heim doesn't have an extension. That That leads me to believe he could, in fact, be fired. I really believe that. Um, another thing to consider here is free agency starts almost right away. The, one of the first moves that these executives make is to extend the qualifying offers to all the free agents. And then they have, what is it? Five or six days, I think to accept that offer. And then after that, you know, it, it all, it all begins. Let me just wrap with this one last thing before I pass it over to... Uh, oh, actually, I'm the last to go on this, aren't I? Um, well, I'll just wrap it on this. The Red Sox expected to win last year. That was the expectation. Maybe not like the World Series, but they were expected to have a winning season, cruise into the month of October. That didn't happen. It was the same expectation this year. I know the Bluminati loves to say we're in a rebuild and it was always the plan to we weren't going to start getting serious until year X. But that's not true. The, the Red Sox expected to go deep last year. And if like we had the year prior, by the way, we had just gone to the ALCS, mostly with Dave Dombrowski's guys, Evaldi, uh, Erod. You know, there were a couple of Bloom guys mixed in there, Kike, Pavetta, but, it, you know, a lot of Dave Dombrowski's guys were still here, and, and then we got to game six of the ALCS. So 2022, uh, there's no doubt in my mind they thought they were going to take another stab at it. And then coming into 2023, Sam Kennedy told Ken Rosenthal in an interview that the 2023 Boston Red Sox would win the World Series. That's what Sam Kennedy told Ken Rosenthal. So I'm sure I'm sure there was a lot of optimism. I don't think he came up with that on his own. I think there was, at a minimum, a lot of optimism in the front office that this team would be successful, that this pitching staff was sustainable, and it never was going to be. And so, so this will be the, the, at least the second year in a row, Heim didn't meet the expectations. So uh, to me, that points more towards being fired. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. And I'm not going to lie. I'm very emotionally invested in that. So that can often, whenever anybody's emotionally invested in anything, that affects your judgment. You know, it clouds your judgment. So I, I could be way off, but 
But based on some of these indicators I've laid out, it, it points more towards firing uh, than uh, not a an extension and b him even going into next year as a lame duck. I just don't think it'll happen. I want to ask you guys uh, something to kind of piggyback off of that point. Um, obviously, it's easy to draw the parallels between Bloom and Dombrowski, as Dombrowski was, you know, the general manager, the the stint prior, right? If you look at the other organizations that Dombrowski had general managed prior to coming to Boston, you're you're looking at the Florida Marlins or the Miami Marlins and the Detroit Tigers, right? Two franchises that you can say have been abject disasters since he left. Now, Dombrowski is about as close to a closer as you're going to get in the front office. He's a guy that you can come in if your team is close to, to winning a World Series and get you over the edge, and that's exactly what he did, right? Boston was – it had a lot of good pieces. It had some prospects that they could sell off to, to get high-end starting talent, and he got us a World Series. He checked the box. He absolutely did what he came here to do. We thank him for his time here in Boston, but he, I don't think, has that – necessarily sustained winning mentality right and what he's done to franchises as he leaves them is devastating right like neither one of those franchises are particularly in places to to compete now you can look at miami and say where are their priorities are they trying to win year in and year out sure we can have that discussion right because they've been selling major league mvp type talent away for peanuts or pennies and detroit I don't, I don't even know what Detroit's doing right now. What is their plan, right? They keep getting top draft pick after top draft pick, either not developing them or, or giving up on them. But they're, in my opinion, the Red Sox are in a much different position than some of those other franchises Dombrowski has been at previously at a much quicker rate than some of these other franchises. In that regard, it gives me hope. Now, I, as I said, my, my position doesn't change. I don't think I'm ready to give Bloom an extension yet. What I do acknowledge necessarily where this franchise was when he did take over. Nick, did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I've grown tired with the mentality that Dave Dombrowski destroyed the Red Sox. I very much disagree with that. I think Dombrowski came in and got the pieces that he needed, a.k.a. he traded for Craig Kimbrell. He got David Price here, which was a free agent move. Those prospects and everything that he dealt. Oh, the other one was Chris Sale. I'm sorry. That was your Juan Mancada and Michael Kopech, if I'm if I'm correct on that one. I if I don't know if, if you guys have saw anything different, but in my eyes, that didn't crumble anything from the Red Sox. You got pieces in return to win. The goal every season is to win a World Series. I do not care what the Worcester Red Sox are going to do. Great. If they have wonderful players that are down there, bring them up to the major leagues. The Portland Sea Dogs go and win the World Series or championship, whatever the heck they get. Great. Bring them up to the next level. It's all about, at least for me, getting the players who are developed in the younger, in the uh, minor leagues and everything, up to the big league club to win it all. I think Dombrowski gets a bad rap from that because – at least his time here in Boston, he did nothing short of just helping this team win and get them another championship. I give him a lot of credit for what he's put in from there. Um, this is no knock on you, Cody, by any means. It's just how I feel on the Dombrowski front. 
if you really want me to throw a real curveball at the action here, before Dombrowski retires from baseball, if he's still with the Phillies, I expect the Phillies to get at least to the World Series, if not win another World Series with Dombrowski. I wish Dombrowski was still here, plain and simple. Just to add to that, um, you know, the the pro Dombrowski people will say, well, who did he trade away, as Nick was referring to? I mean, who, who do we regret? Name one prospect. I don't. I don't. A- absolutely nobody, at least in my eyes. <laughs> right. Um, you know, maybe Moncada, but I mean, he was the number one prospect in all baseball. And I, I think we can all agree fell way short of the hype. He, he's an adequate MLB player, but not uh, certainly not a game changer. Um, and the things that I would knock him for, and, and I didn't, I thought it was appropriate. I wasn't mourning Dave Dombrowski's firing. I, I didn't like the sale signing. I ripped that right away. The ink was still wet. I just couldn't believe they would sign him a year early and not let him play out that year. What were they afraid of? There were just so many red flags. And I didn't, I never liked the Evaldi signing. You know, it was a, it was a thank you contract for what he did in the playoffs. But so, you know, it is what it is, but at the same time, I mean, you have to give Dave Dombrowski credit for what he's done with this Phillies team. And he's made some good trades. Brandon Marsh for that Ryan O'Hoppy kid. That was a good trade. He won that one. If if the Phillies win the World Series and and Michael Lorenzen is, is a machine throughout the playoffs, that's what Dave Dombrowski does. He does not lose many trades. He does not lose. Remember, too, he, tried, he signed Trey Turner. And he also signed Kyle Schwarber right away from you. So remember that. If he goes in attacks and wants to get something, he gets it. There's no denying the man from it. I mean, he wanted David Price from the get-go. He was up front with the fan base. He said, we need a pitcher. Well, he goes out and gets the best available starting free agent pitcher. That was David Price at the time. Oh, we need a closer. No problem. We're going to get this guy, trade him away, trade him to the Padres, brought him in. I like the transparency a lot with Dave Dombrowski. He's honest, and he gets the job done. Unlike that bozo brain Sam Kennedy, I can't stand that guy. I actually despise him more than I despise Heimblum. I think he's kind of a weasel myself, um, but yeah. But anyway, I just—it's hard to see, see the Phillies' success and then look at us and we're. <laughs> we're just we're four and a half games back from the third wild card. Rob Manfred literally cool. made it way easier for Hein Bloom to get in the playoffs by adding an yeah. extra team, and Hein can't do it. So, Cody, you struck a nerve <laughs> on me at least. <laughs> I mean, Dombrowski. I have no issues with the trades that he makes. I have no issues with the transparency that he has. My issue is there is when when he left the organization, our number one prospect was Bobby Dalback which this podcast specifically has ripped to absolute shreds for his performance in the major league level, right? He gives out bloated contracts over long term that are albatrosses. He hamstrings your franchises year over year. His model is great for the short term 
let me get you a World Series. And if he doesn't do it, your organization is absolutely in tatters, right? One of his largest fail. I don't know how Detroit didn't win a single World Series in the tenure that he had with them. That team absolutely should have won one, and they didn't, and now look at where they are. They've got literally nothing and nothing to build upon. And I believe that if Philadelphia doesn't get it done in the next couple of seasons, it's not going to look great there as well either. You're paying individuals into age 40 seasons at 30 plus million dollars a year. That does not give you any sort of roster flexibility. Kyle Schwarber is a negative war player right now. I know he hits a lot of home runs, but he is below average. Terry, you wanted to add something. Yeah, I don't really have a problem with the Schwarber deal. I mean, it's got three years left. Hopefully it'll be a little bit more salvageable. Um, the only super long-term deals he has is Harper, which he didn't sign, by the way. He inherited that one. But uh, I don't think the Trey Turner one is going to age particularly well, and I'm sure Dombrowski was like, well, I won't be here <laughs> by the year six mark. Um, that's not a contract I would have signed. I'm just trying to see how he's doing. It wasn't good last I checked. Yeah, he's got a. Two- he got the Philly fans to support somebody performing poorly. That was incredible out of out of Philly fans. Like Turner had been doing so bad that they're just like, let's just give this guy a standing ovation. And since then, he's been on an. You absolute stole the character. thunder. I was going to mention that so with cool the trade thing. That was really cool. Okay. I absolutely agree with that. That was really classy. His numbers are trending towards semi-respectable now. And if he has a big postseason, then that wipes away, you know. The first half of the season. Uh, but I want to point out two things, two observations real quick. He he tried to extend Aaron Nola, and it was a semi-lowball offer, but he didn't throw the Brinks truck at him like he did with Dombrowski. So I think, uh, excuse me, like he did with Evaldi. Uh, so I think Dombrowski's kind of learned there. You know, don't, don't do that. And as far as the Tigers... At some point, you do have to blame Al Avila for some of the moves he's made. And I don't think the the 2023 Tigers, I, I don't think we can blame Dombrowski for that anymore. Uh, a whole new regime just botched a bunch of drafts. You, you know, if you want to roast him for, you know, 2015 through 2020 or maybe even 2021, I'm, I'm good with that. But, um, it's kind of sad to see, you know, the Tigers, but you know they got to the World Series in 2010. Giants beat them. Um, had a heck of a race with us in, in 2013, and I thought we were going to get beat by them at the start of the postseason. I'm like, well, this has been a nice magical season, but they've got Verlander and Scherzer. We got Lester and Lackey. You know, how's that going to work? And and uh, they had Miguel Cabrera at his absolute peak. But we got it done, and uh, thank goodness. 2013 is one of my favorite seasons ever. But So I just wanted to point those out, and uh, the Bluminati has probably shut the, us off. Um, at some point with the Tigers, you got to come down to that as a performance. They had everything. They had Verlander. They had Scherzer. They had uh, Miggy. They had everything. Torrey Hunter. They failed. They failed. And... Sometimes you got to have accountability on the players' end of it too. Absolutely, can Dabrowski get get uh, blame from that? Sure, but at the end of the day, if you look at the results of 06, 10, 
and at least 2013, those players did not reach that expectation. They failed. They didn't get it. I'm done with Very Dombrowski. Well. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, let's get back into the hot takes. Terry, why don't you hit us with your second hot take? Okay, so this one's my own. Um, we've seen some bad umpiring in the last, uh, you know, couple weeks. Junior Valentine uh, had a terrible game. Um, Alex Cora has been ejected from a couple of games. Uh, the Dodgers were kind of on the wrong end of it with the bases loaded. Max Muncy up. That that ball was pretty well below, uh, borderline egregious, I would say. Um, and that certainly hurt the 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 Dodgers. And uh, a lot of fans, I think, are you know they're getting more open to robo umps and having an automatic strike zone and all that, but I'm not on board with that. I I like the controversy. I like the level of anxiety that the human element brings, especially with the home plate umpire. And it gets us talking and it gets us fired up. I just think it's good for the game. It's good for the podcast. And I don't really want to see a, an automated strike zone. And I guess they're having a little bit of trouble. They were talking about it today. I think Euclid was. Um, they're having a little bit of trouble with it because if a shorter player comes up and then, you know, a really tall player that's 6'5 or so comes up to bat, it's it's having trouble determining the height of the strike zone. But it's not something I want to see. I, I want baseball to be as human as possible. And I mean, I wasn't in favor of the pitch clock initially, you know, in the last year, year and a half, I kind of warmed up to it. And I'm at the point where I think they should keep it. Um, and, and there's been some other things. I still don't like the three batter minimum. I would, uh, I miss those chess matches between the managers and we don't get that anymore, but and I think now that we have the pitch clock, we have less of a need for the three batter minimum. So I, I would bring that back. But robo umps, you know, every so often that gets to be a you know a topic of conversation, and I'm not for it. I like the human element, even if bad things happen at our expense. So those are my thoughts on that. Nick, what about you? Yeah, I'm a human element kind of guy. When I was a kid, I kind of look at this whole idea of the robot umpires and uh, you know the human element correlating in a way of animation. When I was a kid, I always watched like the real life shows. That's what my parents stressed: the Sesame Streets, the Mister Rogers, that kind of stuff. I feel like if you take that human element away. It's going to become more of like a video game experience in a way if the automation is there. I think we're trending to that happening. And that pains me to say that because I am very much a traditionalist. I don't like change that often. I like the game to be played the way it's been played or is done for many, many, many years. The problem is the trend that we're seeing of games being altered from umpires losing outs or can't figuring out 
the ball is right down the middle and they call it a ball and it changes the complexion of the game. We can't continue to see this repeatedly happen. It's going to take away, like Terry said, the ability to talk about the Angel Hernandezes, the Jim Joyces, the Ron Culpas, the Joe Wests. It's going to remove that element of that criticism that gets a charge out of us all. That's going to take away from you know our podcast or any other talking points that come from it. But I'm going to tell you that probably within the next five to ten years, you are going to start seeing more automation be put in play because Major League Baseball, uh, being specific to a budget, is going to like the automation a whole lot more, and they're going to see that they can save a whole lot of money by not having to pay an umpire, and they're going to eat that up. And I'm sure that automation is coming quicker and sadly taking away that human element to the game. When we had uh, discussed this hot take, uh, you know, kind of behind the scenes, I was I was all for it, right? Um, I think the black and white aspect of a strike zone is is one of the few things that you can't really fudge in, in baseball, right? Like it's supposed to be what, um, you know, through like the middle of the knee and and the middle of the chest, right? It's it's clearly defined in the rules of the game what the strike zone is supposed to be for you know, a specific batter. Um, the unfortunate trends, as, as Nick mentioned, you know, we're starting to see things, if they're testing it out in the minor leagues, sure enough, a year or two later, it's going to be in the majors, right? And I remember when they are like, okay, no more shifts in the minors, a pitch clock, the three batter minimums, and then sure enough, a year or two later, it's in the major league, seemingly um, without any sort of player vote or player discussion, just more of like a unilateral decision. And Terry, I didn't know that they've been having issues with, you know, judging a I guess an adequate strike zone if there's a lot of variance between player height but the umpires aren't making it easier on us to push back against the robot umpires right the best thing you can do is go out there and have good games and and be consistent and I think the consistency is the hardest part right and I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I can call a better game than these guys we obviously you know we're armchair warriors we're sitting on a couch with a great vantage point of the strike zone we don't have to deal with you know, 16 inches of arm side movement or, you know, a sweeper that's breaking across both batter boxes, you know, in the shadows and whatnot. But back in the day, I feel like you used to say like, oh, this player or like this umpire will give you a generous strike zone or this guy's really going to needle you or, you know, he'll give you the right side, but he's going to hammer you on the left side. But you kind of knew what the rules of engagement were going to be. And I feel like the more baseball we watch these days, the more all over the place they are. That pitch to Muncie was absolutely not a strike. It benefited the Red Sox, which was great, sure, but that was low. And then, you know, a couple batters later, that pitch was a ball. I mean, sorry, yeah, that pitch was a ball. And now the pitchers don't know what to do. The batters don't know what to swing at. You saw it in the Yankees series as well. And it's it's making it very difficult, and it's really affecting the outcome of the games. And that's the only time I think you're really going to see changes when it does affect the outcomes, right? Uh, you know, you have pages on Twitter – that audit the umpires and it's seeming like more and more things are, are generating from Twitter and then making it into mainstream decision-making. And it's a real shame because the human element of the game is a lot of it, right? You know, those few tense moments when, when the ball hits the mitt and there's that pause between, you know, is the umpire going to flash the single for a strike or is he going to let it be a ball? Those are tense moments. That's part of the enjoyment. That's part of, part of the experience. And, um, 
you know, I was ready to come on here and say, I think we need robot arms, but I think you guys convinced me. Uh, the human element of, of is that a ball or a strike might just be too integral to the game to, to leave. But, you know, something's got to change by the umpires. I don't know how you, how you can you know, improve performance that way, but they're certainly not helping them, helping themselves. Just one other note. I mean, AI is becoming a, a big thing in life, you know, across the economy and the workforce and uh, the military, all of that. And I'm just wondering if and you're starting to see a lot of pushback against it in, in certain aspects. And I, I won't get into the politics of that, but I'm just wondering if perhaps maybe at the 11th hour there there could be some pushback here. And here's here's an example of AI. We're probably not far out that you could you could put Jerry Remy's voice on Kevin Euclid and get the accent and get Jerry Remy for the whole game, uh, you know, with words coming out of Euclid's mouth but sounding like Jerry Remy. I mean, that's how crazy we're getting here with artificial intelligence. Someday you might be able to read somebody's mind with it. I I mean, I don't Have you guys ever seen what like, PBS does with um they like recreated Bob Ross. They did a recreation of Mr. Rogers from just different intakes of stuff that they've said over the years and created like new songs and new content just with their voice mixes. That's going to happen in baseball. It's definitely happening. It's a huge point that you brought up, Terry. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, I see it happening. I just, I just so I, I just I want life to be human again, and I, I certainly want baseball to be human. But. Nick, why don't you hit us with your final hot take of the evening? The final hot take is uh, Julio Rodriguez is your MVP. In case people don't know who Julio Rodriguez is, he's the phenomenon that's with the Seattle Mariners. He's having a heck of a season. He's keeping this team in the hunt and everything as well for the Mariners. Before I go over the statistics and everything of what he's put up, I just want to say it's a nice take, but I disagree with it. Julio Rodriguez's numbers this season, he's got a 4.9 war. That's incredible right there. Um, he's had 530 at-bats. He's got 23 homers with a 281 batting average with a slugging percentage of a 472. The 2023 MLB race for the AL is going to come down to Shohei Hotani, whether he's hurt or not. The dark horse in the matter, and I think both of you guys will agree on this, is Kyle Tucker of the Astros. And number three right now on the list is Corey Seager with the Rangers. All three having an outstanding season. The Kyle Tucker name is definitely very intriguing to me. I hope the Red Sox can shut him down this upcoming series they have against him. That guy's having an awesome season. And that's somebody that I don't think many of us had in our little brackets for picking who could be an MVP or whatnot. But uh, Julio Rodriguez, he's an intriguing player. Don't get me wrong. He's helping that team quite a bit, but he's, in my eyes, maybe top, maybe if number five on the top five list, but he's not higher than that, at least in my opinion right now. Terry, what are your thoughts? I also have to disagree with the hot taker. I mean, Julio Rodriguez is 15th right now in the American League when it comes to OPS. 15th. 
he wouldn't be top five in average. Uh, looking at the on base, he wouldn't even be top five in on base. He's hit 23 home runs. Um, Isaac Paredes, Rafi Devers, Luis Robert, Kyle Tucker, and Shohei Otani have all belted uh, more home runs than him. How many has Casas hit? 21. So Casas is, is only two, two home runs behind him and uh, six spots ahead of him in, in OPS. I just, I don't see how you, you get to J rod who's a phenomenal player and probably will be an MVP some year. I don't see how you get to him in 2023. I'll also say this. Nobody's going to have a higher war than Shohei Otani, but if his season ended tomorrow, I probably don't give it to him. I, I probably don't just because he didn't play the whole season. His team didn't get into the playoffs, which is a big factor for me. So I would actually probably lean towards Kyle Tucker, especially if he can get that batting average over 300. He's hitting 292 right now with a 373 on base. He's third in the American League uh, with OPS, and he's uh, belted 26 home runs probably on pace for about 34, 35. And where is he with runs batted in? He actually leads the American League with runs batted in. Shohei Otani is currently five behind him. So that's my pick for MVP uh, if, if I were a voter. I mean, Kyle Tucker absolutely is is a dark horse pick, right? You know, he's just your quiet producers. I feel like Houston is getting more and more of those guys. They were so loud and brash, you know. Uh, you know they kind of picked a different recourse here with guys like Valdez and, and Tucker who just go out there, put in their work, Alvarez for that matter, and um, just get it done. We got to give Julio Rodriguez credit for even being in this discussion. I know that when he signed his huge extension, everything was built on escalators, you know, rookie of the year, MVP, batting champion, RBI champions, whatever it was. And like you guys mentioned, he's far down the list. You know, his stat, his counting numbers don't necessarily do a lot, but that recent hot streak that he went on was something to behold. I think it was over five games. He had 18 hits. He had more hits than the entire New York Yankees had uh, over that same amount of of games, but I just think the ground in between where where he was coming from to where he is now is just a little bit too much to make up. You know, it's a a definite player that you can kind of circle on, maybe throw a couple of shekels for some future bets for an MVP. But I just don't think it's going to be this year for him. Um, you know, like you guys mentioned, he's having a great season. You know, I think over his last thirty games, he's batting like four hundred, um, and he's batting close to five hundred over his last seven games. And so, you know, he's he's definitely putting together a, a strong finish. He's getting the Mariners into first place in the AL West. Um, but I just don't think it's going to be enough at the end of the day. Anything else that you gentlemen wanted to add? All righty. Well, that'll wrap it up for all of us here tonight. We want to thank all of our loyal listeners and to our first-time listeners as well. We appreciate all of you. Whether you're listening to us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, we thank you. Everyone have a great night and take care.